All right, welcome back to the Sober Minded Podcast again. This one is a little bit different. We're going to uh, do a deep dive uh, on Blacktail. Probably not that deep. (laughs) We have our resident uh, Blacktail expert, Jamie Kimmel, back. Um, And this was my first year really getting into hunting, and uh, this season really, really piqued my interest, and I had a lot of fun. And I've been trying to gather as much information as I can. Um, and one thing that a resource that has been nice for me at work is podcasts. And I've been learning a lot through podcasts and through Jamie and uh, Nate Bailey from the Life Outdoors. But I thought it'd be cool to do an all-encompassing single podcast where we talk about the characteristics of the animal, um, the food sources, and using all that, um, tying that into hunting the actual animal. It, it was exciting watching you this year because you could tell you were so into it and you were so excited. I, I'd get these two-page long texts <laughs> every day about how do I pattern and how, what about this and what about that. And it's like, man, they kind of just are where they are. But no, it was it was cool watching you work so hard and, and then be so well rewarded. That was an awesome deer you killed. So Oh, man, yeah, anyway. I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, just – as I was working doing monotonous tasks, I was just thinking about hunting all day long. So I'd just message Jamie constantly throughout the day. Hey, what about this? What do I do with this? How about this? I was incredibly helpful. I gave very <laughs> vague answers. But, uh, but yeah. So what I'm wanting to do is do this one with Jamie. And there's a few others I want to get Nate Bailey on here and talk about. Because he's really into elk. And so he'd be a good one to have on with... Uh, bow hunting elk especially um he has been there and done that been there done that multiple times so um what are the different species of deer because that's something i didn't even know uh, a few months ago so if you narrow it down like to to north america and and if you leave out elk and other cervids you know if you're looking at just what people traditionally think of as deer um, obviously, you've got whitetails from the Atlantic, really all the way here to the West Coast. We have pockets of whitetails, but uh, they're they're prevalent all the way across the country. And then you've got mule deer, you know, west side of the Midwest, uh, here right up to the Cascades, Eastern Oregon, great mule deer, Idaho, you know. All those western states are famous for mule deer. And then we have little pockets up the coast of my favorite deer, which are blacktails. And they're only my favorites because that's what I grew up hunting. And I think they're really sneaky and intriguing and hard to pattern. And, you know, they're just, they're a really neat little deer. And uh, so we have those northern California, southern Oregon, uh, along the coast, up into northern Oregon and Washington. And then up in Alaska, there's also blacktail deer. So uh, the buck that you killed this year reminds me of, you know, if somebody went to Sitka and they killed a, a big blacktail buck, in my mind, the buck you killed looks just like one of those stereotypical trophy Sitka blacktails. So, oh, and then you've got coos and, you know, those kind of deer down in, in the desert in the south, but... 
that's that's a pretty specialized subspecies down there too. So. Yeah, and so I guess yeah, it could have been more specific with um, the main ones people think of as whitetail, mule deer, and blacktail. Right. Um, and so when you look at a buck like mine, what are the characteristics that make it look like a blacktail as opposed to the others? Well, starting with the name, the uh, <laughs> the tail isn't as big as a uh, a mule deer or a whitetail. So, you know, a white tail flashes its tail and goes running off. It's a great big white flag, and the, the black tail is definitely not as, as dramatic, and it's it's black. Um, then the the shape of the antlers is quite a bit different uh, with mule deer and black tail compared to uh, a white tail. White tail, you typically, you know, uh, there's always variations, but... You'll typically have those main beams coming from the pedicle up out of the head, and that main beam travels forward, and then the tines kind of come up off of that main beam. Whereas the uh, the mule deer and the blacktail will, the main beam will come up, but then it's it's more the branch is more substantive. Where, like, say it's four points on a side for a uh, a mule deer or a blacktail, it, it'll be more evenly split as far as the way that main beam is formed. So you, it kind of goes over and then two points on that beam and then the, the true main beam carries through and over and two points on that beam, but it's not boom, boom, boom coming up off of one continuous main beam. Okay. It, it, it's not as dramatic. Okay. And what about in the face? Oh. Is there much difference there? You know, it, there are subtle differences. If you look at one, you can say, that's that's this species of deer typically. Blacktail and mule deer are a little harder to tell apart. Um, there's you know tales of of unscrupulous individuals passing off nice mule deer as trophy blacktails, <laughs> you know, before and and without doing a genetic test, it's like yeah I could see you know maybe so, but uh, yeah it, the the faces are are different, but it's more subtly different. And there's color, you know, variations and stuff like that. But you see a white tail buck and you see a black tail buck, and they're definitely they have different markings, different face shapes, that kind of thing. But obviously, they're individual animals. There, there's going to be variations. We saw a buck this weekend killed by an archery hunter that had a, just a giant, pronounced Roman nose that was wild. You know, he, he looked like a bighorn sheep, <laughs> and uh, you know, then I've killed bucks that were 20 inch wide you know mature uh 175 pound on the hoof deer that had short little baby faces so you know there, there's variations just like in any any mammal and what's a quick reference because i was under the impression until you told me just the other day, I always thought it was a spike is a baby, and then it turns into a fork and right. horn and then a three-point, <laughs> but that's not the case, is it? it? Not necessarily. I mean, typically typically a spike will be a, a first year. That's the, the antler they grow first. But a lot of bucks in their first year when they grow antlers, they can be fork and horns. And, and there it'll be bannered back and forth whether that's – genetically superior if it forks the first year or not that's one of the arguments for people being able to shoot spikes as well that's a genetically inferior buck and i i i don't know enough one way or the other to say but yeah it doesn't necessarily go 
spike the first year, fork it on second year, three point, uh, three year old, four points a four year old, that kind of thing. There can be, you know, giant old eight year old bucks that have regressed to a forked horn and it might be really heavy and big, but it's only got two points per side. And you might have, I, I killed a deer a couple of years back that I, I really wish now that I had not killed it, but it looked like a really mature, it was, it was almost 20 inches wide, it was tall, it was three points on one side, four points on the other, eye guards, uh, reasonably heavy horns. I didn't get a really good look at the deer, but that deer, I, I haven't had him officially aged, but his teeth were not at all discolored, and they show no wear. I mean, I, normally when you kill a buck, you want those those teeth. I want those teeth to be worn down, you know, close to the gum. You want this deer to have lived a good share of its life already. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's mature, it's wary, it's survived a lot of years. And uh, <laughs> this buck, I... I can't imagine that it could be younger than three and a half, but looking at the teeth, I would have said it was a two and a half year old deer. And but one way or the other, it was genetically superior. And I I wish I could go back and have let it grow <laughs> up some because it would have probably been spectacular. But judging in the field on on the factors that I could judge, it it was a good deer. So <laughs> anyway, will the mass of the antler have? Be an indicator for the age? Typically, that'll get heavier as they get older. Um, but, you know, nutrition comes into play. Genetics come into play. Um, my son, Nate, killed a buck one year that easily fit inside the rack of that buck I was just telling you about that was probably only two and a half years old. And Nate's buck was not very heavy horn. It was, I think, about 17 inches wide, not real tall. Had some extra trash on it, you know, some extra points coming off places non-typically. It was a really cool buck, but that deer, its teeth were worn almost to the gums. It was oh, really? an old buck, but, you know, fairly light horns, fairly small and compact. I think it's a 3 by 3 minus the trash. You know, it just, you know, there's variations. And that was, that was a little tiny body deer, too. Um it, it just genetically uh, or nutritionally or or whatever the factors were, he, he never turned into a big deer. And so, yeah, it's interesting. And when we're talking about genetics, is that just the antlers or will it have to do, are they pretty well tied with the body of the animal as well? No, I mean, they're, those are independent um areas of development but nutrition and genetics definitely come into play in both realms but you can have just a giant bodied deer that's racked is not necessarily impressive from a you know booming crockett or poker mule score perspective and obviously that's that's just a reference um most people that love to hunt deer like to like to say oh you know i, I killed a buck with such and such score just so that, you know, talking to you, you're like, oh, yeah, it was about this big. I can quantify those numbers. But most guys aren't hung up about the numbers as much as they are just using it as a way to, to quantify what it was. and uh, Just and have a reference yeah, for Yeah, it, it's people. a reference, yeah. Um, and are you able to look at its face like that one that Nate killed? W would its face have indicators on 
it being older? It definitely, in the case of that deer, it was very scarred up. It was very gray, um, that kind of thing. But until we looked at the teeth, the, the teeth is my go-to as far as the only sure way to check. And uh, we did not, I, I wish we had sent a tooth in to be sectioned because the Department of Fish and Wildlife will section uh, one of the incisor teeths. 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 <laughs> That's plural. Um, for, uh, and it, it's basically got rings in it like a tree would. Okay. And uh, they can tell how old that deer is, but uh, we didn't do that. But I was looking just at the, the wear on the molars, and, you know, it was worn way down. Right. It, it was an old deer. It had, it had chewed a lot of acorns. And for getting an age, that's free, correct? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, and you can just get a little envelope. You stop in at any of the local Department of Fish and Wildlife offices, and they'll give you an envelope, and you can mail that in, or you can drop off a tooth or, you know, give your name and number. And it, it helps the, the department because they can gather that information, you know, what's kind of a cross-section of the age of the deer population in our area, what's being killed, what are the numbers? Um, you know, did we have a lot of older deer die off in a hard winter? You know, just it, it helps them survey, and it's a really interesting thing for the hunter. For to sure. Know, you know, what what's this animal that I interacted with so closely? You know, what's some of its story? Yeah, for sure. And that's something that's super cool, tying it back into the Christianity aspect of the podcast. Of That's so cool is having it structured so well is we are being good stewards in that we know that we have the deer population we're by following their structure you know we're we're playing a part of this system we're doing our best to make an ethical kill on what we hope is a mature animal that's lived a good life giving it a quick a quick clean death um and that's something that's gratifying when you get a mature animal like that you know he's lived a good life and we try to put him down in the cleanest way possible not get ripped up from the bottom (laughs) up by a cougar bear yeah wolves every campfire discussion will definitely you know go back to this is good stewardship and we totally agree with everything the government is doing to uh (laughs) (laughs) to properly manage this public resource but yes you're right uh we we all need to uh play by some rules and and uh they're the they're the governing body in that and even if we disagree with whether they let us shoot spikes or or whether they limit you know to a certain antler count or whatever but yeah going back to the clean deaths i i found one time i was muzzleloader elk hunting so it was in november and I found this scenario, and I still have no idea what played out there, but there was a small deer that had been killed. It was a doe, and it looked like somebody had stuffed a couple of sticks of dynamite in it. There was pieces of this deer spread around in about a 30-yard circle. There was meat up in the trees around it. I mean, Jeez. little chunks of meat up in several trees. I, I... It was probably a combination of like coyotes, a bear, and then a bunch of crows or something oh, like yeah. that. But the the carnage of this scene, the walk in on where this deer had died, 
in the last couple of days because this was all fairly fresh a giant trampled area in the grass and then just pieces of deer spread around for this 30 yard circle and up 20 feet in trees uh, yeah it, nature is not kind in the <laughs> way that it deals out death and uh, I, I don't know what that deer suffered but it was spectacular nature is metal <laughs> yeah exactly. that instagram page <laughs> will really put things in a perspective yeah. that oh nature isn't all sunshine and rainbows out yeah, there maybe hugging that tree is uh, is not as good as it gets and that's where i was so grateful because it was totally like god gave me this perfect opportunity on this buck on the last day but it was just the perfect he stopped turned give me a shot and with under a minute he was dead he didn't go more than 40 yards and just the sense of relief and gratitude of yep. that's as clean as that could have gone it was yep. it's you just got to be grateful for those and and you look as we butchered that meat and and the amount of yield that that gave to your family and you know the the cool things you get to do with that and then this amazing memento that you've got, you know, you're working on cleaning up the skull for a European mount now. I mean, that that's, yeah, it, it's, it's, in a way, it's a tragedy. And, and Nate, you know, Bailey has, has talked about this at length, where, where the flood is a testament and everything else. A and, and obviously in a world that wasn't fallen, life and death would look a lot different. But, uh the the way that one animal sacrifices to uh, sustain another the other being us in this case is uh it, it really is deep and important and uh, it, unless you choose to uh to completely not partake of any meat or anything else uh i i think it's i wouldn't go so far as hypocritical necessarily but i think it's a really good idea for people to be actively involved in taking some of their their meat uh, in some kind of an act of hunting uh, just because it, it does connect you and, and you appreciate the the loss of life and the you know it, it's just it's a deep interaction between mm -hmm. you and another organism and yeah it and definitely is gives you a whole new perspective on it and you yep processing it yourself is like my first buck the two years ago like i processed that, that much smaller buck i didn't work as hard for <laughs> but um but i processed that myself and that was super cool on my first time to be able to you know see how to butcher it and the different cuts and um it does you're more appreciative of it um yep. yeah and it's it's like stewarding in a fallen world where it's not what the ideal is but we're dealing with what we have here and, and you'll never look at even you know cuts of steak or chops in the grocery store the same yeah because you're like oh wait a second i i realize you know to the depths of my being this used to be part of a living breathing thing mm -hmm. and uh it, it's not like kids just thinking that meat comes from the store you know yeah it's there's there's death and taking of life involved and uh, yeah yep. so it's and taking game animals again tying it back to like those animals lived a great life where right. like <laughs> that buck every 
year, got his time with the does, got to run around, and it's a lot different than the giant commercial farming, which is right. a, a necessity at the That's the only the time, way you sustain seven-point-whatever yep. billion people, <laughs> but yeah, and, you know, back to the, this is organic meat, largely, I mean, some of these deer might find their way to an alfalfa bale or something, <laughs> but... Uh, it, most farmers try to protect their bales, so <laughs> yeah, yeah they, these are largely organic uh, in their in their food supply. So yeah, so here in Southern Oregon, chasing these blacktails, um, where where do we find them in the different seasons? Like throughout the year, where do you see them? So the area we hunt uh, for rifle season, well, for late rifle season. And uh, for late archery season is actually their wintering grounds. So the the deer we have here are about 85% uh, migratory. So they will travel. It's really remarkable, some of them, how far they'll go. It's not as far as some of the mule deer migrations that have been documented, you know, where they cover several states. But most of these deer will go 20 or 30 miles kind of northeast of here and uh, up into the higher Cascade Mountains. And so they'll spend their summers at between, you know, 4,000 and 8,000 feet elevation. And, uh, and why is that? The, the high lakes we have up there, the cooler climate? You know, I there's food sources up there. It's a bigger area. When they come down here, they're a lot more concentrated. Um, obviously, it's cooler up there. Um, but yeah, I would I'd say, you know, uh, a huge percentage of what drives any wild animal is a food source. And, and down here in our wintering grounds, most of this area is is pretty. We're in a. Uh, a, a transition zone so we're not you know fully a lush valley we're, we're kind of a desert um uh, an ecotone between the alpine where they winter and then if if they were to go farther west they'd get into some more lush low uh valleys but here in this ecotone we're kind of almost a high desert and it's it's not really good food and forage uh, for a lot of it from about May through September. You know, okay. it's hot, it's dry. There's not a ton of food unless you get into a, a you know artificially irrigated area or along some of the really you know the creeks and rivers. And we will have deer that that live year round on a creek or a river, but most of these deer are migratory. Okay. So, and I, I, I would say it'd be interesting to, to discuss it with a biologist at depth, but I would, I would guess that most of that is, is food driven. Okay. And so during our hunting seasons here, are the bucks we see around here, are they here to stay for the winter or is this a part of their path? Do you notice them most moving the, out? Yeah. Most of these will camp here. Okay. Um, now by here, it could be a 10 mile circle. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's typically smaller than that. But, you know, right now here in uh, mid to late November, where the, the rut is at full, full peak. And so they're just looking for does. So 
that buck might circle and circle and circle in a one mile area, which, you know, we have cameras set up and stuff in some of the areas we hunt, and we definitely see that. Well, it, it won't be like a time of day repeatable pattern necessarily, but you'll see the same buck every couple of days for a week or two at a time. Or it might be a huge circle where, you know, they're dropping in four or five different drainages over, you know, the, the three or four weeks of the peak of the rut. And, and that's not uncommon at all. Um, I killed a buck uh, two years ago that I'm sure I would have noticed on my cameras. I've talked to neighbors that have cameras. Nobody had seen this deer up until the day that I shot him. And uh, so, and he had evidence on him that he had been in an area that had burned, and and that was not this area. Yeah. So, that was such a cool bug. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, um, all that to say, I think they migrate because of food, and then as far as they they pretty well settle everything. I've been watching one deer on on one buck on one of my cameras. Uh, over the last week or two that I I know I have pictures of for the last two years. Okay. And so, you know, he's he's actually returned to the same little drainage wow. um, where he was as a, you know, three-and-a-half-year-old, and now he's, you know, he's a, you know, big lumbering, you know, heavy-bodied, got to be at least six-and-a-half-year-old. So is it his antlers that you can yeah. identify? Yeah. yeah. Do they just get heavier mass? Or? In, in his case, he's gotten a little tiny bit bigger but mostly just heavier mass and his body has definitely gotten bigger but he i mean i'm not going to uh, negatively judge any of these deer you know from a genetic standpoint uh, you know it's it's not the end all beat all to have deep forks and and long tines and big eye guards but this guy is a very ugly buck. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he is not something that would ever be picked out as genetically strong, and so uh, he's pretty distinctive. Gotcha. But he was young when I first saw him, and he is now old, and, and he's been in the same, you know, drainage for the last three winters. Huh. So, at least, you know, I, I just, that was the first time I noticed him yeah. three years ago. So. And so, about when does the rut start, and when does it go to? And is it pretty exact each year, or does it fluctuate? No, it fluctuates. Um, I mean, it's it's you know every every small cafe where the guys are sitting around drinking coffee, they're asking, "Have you seen any bucks chasing yet?" And uh, usually, you know, by late October, the rut has started, and. Uh, mid-December it's pretty well settled down but uh you'll you'll see some activity after that okay some of the youth seasons go into early January and and there's times you'll see bucks still chasing okay um and you'd you'd said you'd heard some fighting today oh that sounds pretty cool I've been uh I've been deer hunting for more years than I care to admit and I've seen, you know, four or five times where I actually got to interact with bucks while they were fighting. And uh, today, over the course of about three hours, and I never could get a real good look at them to, to really identify what bucks were involved. But I had five different times where bucks were fighting within a few hundred yards of the stand that I had set up. 
and so uh, it it was really cool. And they were so vocal; they were grunting and and you know bleeding like a sheep, and you know it was <laughs> it was cool. wild. And then I'd see a- after they would fight, I'd see two bucks go you know running off with the victor chasing the loser. And then there was another buck trailing behind, <laughs> and I, I don't know where he fit in the whole mix, but I saw that happen two or three times over over a couple of hours, and then there were some other fights that I could never see the deer, but, you know, I could hear him going off, and, yeah, it was it was really cool. It, this morning was going to stand out. <laughs> yeah, and that, even if you don't get a buck, like, you obviously want a buck, but it's those interactions that are super cool too like it's yeah you want a buck but it's also the whole hunt it is i still want a buck for sure for sure (laughs) when it's like the interaction is huge and that's why i love archery hunting you know there's no end of frustration this morning because i saw (laughs) multiple very nice mature blacktails that would have been an easy easy shot with a rifle but you don't get those kinds of interactions during rifle season. Yeah. That's, that's why I archery hunt is, you know, to see multiple mature bucks in a day and to uh, to watch them interact with, with other deer and, and to hopefully get into an opportunity where you can actually, you know, cleanly kill one. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why I think I'm going to archery hunt next year. I, I think you'll love it, and I think you're dedicated you know enough to to make a go of it i'm pretty does it excited. doesn't mean you'll necessarily <laughs> kill a buck but you'll you'll make a valiant effort well and the learning like the experience right. like that's what my rifle season was super dry it was right. i saw one smallest spike i've ever seen <laughs> i s- sat there it was like early in the season I just sat there with my scope on him. I wasn't going to shoot him, but I sat with my scope on him for probably 40 seconds as he just stared at me, walked around, stared at me. It was the smallest spike, and then I didn't see anything until the very last day, and I got that buck, Um, which I wouldn't have, at that range, I wouldn't have been able to get him with a bow. Right. Um, But I am excited to have that later season and get those interactions and kind of see them act firsthand I, I have a little trail cam video i need to show you it, it's a small spike and he's actually nursing off of the doe that's his mom <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was the, probably that same probably spike. that same spike because <laughs> it was pretty close to where that camera is really that's where i saw that spike <laughs> no, it's funny uh, there again you don't often see you, you know we, we don't have have a place where we necessarily watch deer in a field like you would if you had a soybean field or a cornfield or something mm-hmm. you know we're, we're in brush and timber and stuff so you don't necessarily just watch deer by the hour and so it's not that often that we get to see him you know doing things like nursing and stuff like that and he got in there and it was just like a, a calf to a, a <laughs> bovine cow he's in there bumping her <laughs> and then he'd nurse and that is funny because that spike was with a doe that was bigger than him. Right. It was those two I saw. Well, I'm glad you didn't shoot it. <laughs> 100%. I wouldn't have been able to forgive myself. No. But, but yeah, that drier season, I, I spent hours out there, which, um, which like I told you, it's, it's a fine line where I was so glad I got him on the last day because I got to have my full, my entire season. But up until I got him, I was pretty frustrated that it was my last day. (laughs) Yep. Um, 
but it's also and with the boys too them being successful i'm so glad they had a successful year they worked hard um and as well getting them on their last day yep. getting their full season yeah that was that day is another one that'll just go down in oh, history man. that was so much fun and those boys worked so hard and then to have that picture of you and and all those boys and every one of you got a mature buck this yeah. year and, and i mean i i should have looked up when i knew we were going to talk about it i should have looked up success rates for rifle hunting um in this unit but uh it, it's not a hundred percent not by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination so to have that picture of uh, all six or seven of you lined up there and, and to have all of you have killed really exceptional deer and then for all of you to have worked so hard at it and i mean you know it was miles that we packed out nate and luke's deer and uh, you know almost a thousand foot of elevation and you know it, it's it's not the same as somebody cruising up and down a forest service road and shooting from the vehicle it was it was really rewarding and you know the time that jake put in and yeah just that that was a special day yeah i i think luke said a dozen times throughout <laughs> that day this is the best day <laughs> ever and yeah. it's just it's so gratifying to to see you know that that satisfaction and that sense of achievement that they 100%. had 100 percent, and that's got to be so cool as a dad too to be oh, raising your son and um and luke um into that and seeing their hard work pay right. off that has to be the best too yeah because they had done miles the day before and they did miles that day and you know it just yeah that was that was really neat and and elk hunting too they did the same yeah. thing you know they had between eight and 15 mile days for a week straight and you know and were grinning the whole time so yeah it's been an epic year and uh yeah, really some special deer hitting the ground during rifle season. And yeah. Finger, fingers crossed for the rest of archery. <laughs> yep. Um, um, how does the weather and the moon affect their pattern? Um, like during, so say during the season. Right. So around this time of year. Yeah, so weather's always going to come into play, but here you know they always say if you uh if you don't like the weather wait five minutes and uh and that's definitely true of october november december where we live and hunt and i and i think it's true anywhere um so i love if it's a rainy or snowy day i love to get out and still hunt and, and you know you can you can get closer to the animals your your scent and your noise is covered better um, you can move around and see more country. It's not just sitting in a stand. I, the animals themselves don't necessarily move a lot during a, uh, a rainy or a snowy day. But then that being said, if it downpours and they hunker down and, and bed for a while, if, if things clear, they might move around more than usual. So it, you really, it all comes down to time in the woods. You, you can't, kill a buck if you're not out in the woods you know when he is but uh the weather 
like a nice cold morning like this morning was is is typically good for them to be out moving and feeding but that being said i was a little bit worried about it because we've got an almost full moon right now and and deer especially as soon as they get much hunting pressure the the mature bucks will go almost 100 percent nocturnal so uh, this morning i was i had a little trepidation as to what would really be moving um, between the full moon and and there's been some hunting pressure and stuff but you know here i have the most epic morning ever yeah of all these bucks fighting everywhere i i turn so was it, that it, early early or was that I, a little bit you later know, it, in the morning? it was between oh the the shooting light legal shooting light was 6 45 sun came up at 7 15 um i was in the stand right at legal shooting light and the first bucks lit off fighting about sunrise and and that went on for two and a half three hours okay you know every 20 minutes or a half an hour there was some other altercation so anyway um so it, it was it was surprisingly far into the day today typically that you know you've got that golden first couple of hours and then the last hour or so in the evening are your really prime times but that being said, you can't kill a buck if you're not in the woods. So yeah, if you have the time, hunt the whole day. Yeah, and that was something that was frustrating me, which I it was also, I just don't know very much. But um, it was so dry for almost the entire rifle season, where right. we had like four or five maybe nice rainy days. But other yeah. than that, it was if, just if that crunchy. <laughs> yep. There was I wasn't sneaking up on anything, and I didn't right. have any tree stands or saddle or anything so um and that's where glassing really comes yeah. into play you know maybe you can set up a stock on something you are hunting with a rifle so obviously noise is less of a concern but we are in a thickly wooded and brushy area so um if you're trying to get in there and route them out that noise is tough yeah so. yeah i probably i should have structured it differently i probably should have tried glassing more because I, I spooked a couple, a couple uh, deer a few times throughout the season, but um, never even really saw them. Exactly. It's through that thick buck brush and yeah. manzanita and between the chaparral and the manzanita and even the oak patches sometimes. Yeah, it's it's hard to get a look at them if they're more than a few yards away. Um, like that buck that I shot was. 20 yards away from me and i didn't even see them until yep. they jumped yep um so yeah i probably should have posted up high glassed and made a move from there i remember probably 30 years ago there was a newspaper article about a kid that killed a really nice you know exceptional blacktail buck and they were almost back to where they had parked they had hunted the morning they and they had walked basically passed this deer and one of the guys that was with him shot at a squirrel and this buck decided okay they're shooting and it jumped up and and ran off and, and this kid killed it but you know yeah it was within a few yards of them just laying there letting them walk by Jeez. and they are super cagey that way though unless you spot them and and try to make a move on them or uh, or they think you have they can they can just hold tight and let you go by and so this is jumping a few steps ahead in my notes, but um, but when you're still hunting, 
how often are you spotting them before they see you and how often is it you jump them and then get a shot jumping them and shooting is tough um to ethically identify and and get a good ethical you know not shooting its legs out from under it and slowing it down and killing it um it is really hard on a running deer and I know the old timers would do drives. Uh, one place we hunt, they would they do drives with you know, fifty guys, and they'd send them up over this ridge, and, and <coughs> anything with fur was fair game, and and that's you, you can't look somebody in the eye and say yeah I knew exactly <laughs> where my bullet was going and I knew exactly you know what the backdrop was and, yeah. and all those things so. Uh, um, but well, so with my buck, I jumped him, but I was able to make a make a noise at him, right, and he was and able. Stopped he stopped him. and gave me a second, and I was able to take a shot that was a little far back, but I felt good about it. And it and, and he was standing, and you knew your yep, backstop, yeah. and you had identified the animal. You know that that's definitely way different if they if they stop and offer a shot, but that's it's not necessarily the case that you'll be able to stop them yeah so you were very fortunate in the fact that that worked has that ever um, worked for you do you try to make a noise and make them yeah, stop? I, I've yeah i've certainly tried that and i've i've shot at running deer um you know that i had identified and i was comfortable with the situation and i've also missed running deer yeah so you know back to that being said apparently i didn't know exactly where every bullet was going to go so uh it's if you can spot the deer make a stalk and shoot it while it's unaware of your presence that's the ideal and so how often you know? does are you able to do that because um well, which i know it's different in the late season with the bow late right. bow season because you have more opportunities with more moisture it's not as crunchy but or a tree stand or a, or a tree stand blind, yeah 100 you know. percent um, yeah, because you're you're next to never gonna get a a good shot on a running deer with a bow. I mean, it's just yeah, it's not gonna happen, um, and, and and ethically, it very rarely should happen. So, uh, I would say most deer that are killed with a bow aren't aware that they're being shot at, you know, that or that there's a hunter there, you know, the the interaction is not two-sided um whereas with a rifle and if you're if you're pushing through brush or something like that yeah you very well may have jumped the deer but uh yeah if you can stop it something like that that's that's obviously functional that's what you did this year and it was perfect but ideally you know with a rifle you've got between you know a, a sh fairly short range rifle will still reach 200 yards you know effectively and long-range rifles you can go out until you know you start to argue the ethics of <laughs> you know shooting at really long distances so there's in a lot of cases there's really no reason for that deer to know that you are on the planet you know so, so i guess if we narrowed it down to to bow hunting what are some examples have you been able to spot deer while steer while still hunting and sneak up on them and execute a shot not necessarily sneak up on them 
but I've been able to position myself where I thought they would go. Okay. So, you know, if, if you've got kind of a trail system and you've got a feel for the way the deer are behaving, um, I've had deer walk past me on a trail while they were chasing a doe and shot them while they didn't have a clue I was there. I've shot deer from a tree stand that didn't know I was there. Um, I've also spooked a lot of deer from a tree stand that figured out I was there. Um, I've shot deer from a ground blind that had no idea anything was there until the arrow hit them. Um, and so, and, and I've probably had, I don't know, I don't even care to count, but more than I could count on one hand of deer that I thought, I think I can get an arrow in this thing, but it knew I was there and it avoided the arrow. I mean, they, you're dealing with an animal that gets hunted every day of its life by something. Yeah. You know, whether it's cougars, wolves, coyotes, bobcats, bears, you know, something is always trying to kill a deer. They're all, their head's always on a swivel and their reaction time is insane. So even with our modern, you know, if you're shooting a compound bow and it's going, you know, well over 300 feet per second, that arrow, a deer at any kind of range can still move out of the way of that arrow. And that's called so jumping the string, Yeah, yeah right? jumping the string, that's, that's definitely a term for it. Um, and so, like, the, the idea behind that term being when, when the bow goes twang, they jump. And obviously, by the time the arrow gets there, the deer's not where it was. Um, and, and I've had several times that it's like, you know, I'm, I'm sure I can get an arrow in this thing. And, and by the time my arrow got there, the deer was not. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you just have to respect the, the fact that these things move around in the woods. They're always a prey animal. And, uh, and they're very good at staying alive. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's funny seeing all the guys on the road this time of year, right. going back to what you were saying, yeah. them being smart and avoiding that i've been seeing like they're rutting but i've been seeing them in the morning before like when it's dark on yep. my way to work yep. running in front of these rigs that are parked along there where yep. they know they're safe at that um when it's way too dark for anyone to see them right yeah and uh and like i say right now we've got almost a full moon so you know they i, I walked from my car to your studio in the dark you know, just by moonlight. Yeah. And so uh, I'm sure the deer's vision is way better than my old eyes. I don't know. That's probably why Fern is freaking <laughs> yeah. going ballistic. I hope it's not, doesn't catch too much on the audio. She's good if she's in here and is in bed, but when she's outside, if she hears anything, as soon as it gets dark, right. she goes I ballistic. Any bump in the night. Or yeah. Um, it's probably that cougar. <laughs> probably. Um, okay, so how do you identify the sign? Like, uh, like uh, their tracks, buck versus doe tracks. Oh, right. Um, so typically, so cervids have a, a split hoof. So they've got basically two toes as opposed to like a horse with, with one big rounded toe. And uh, then uh, all deer will have a, a set of dew claws or, or like smaller toes up on the back of their ankle but does will typically walk with their main toes closer together and and kind of a rounded track 
and you don't typically see that declaw in the track. I mean, there's instances where if they're running or they're sliding downhill or something, those may may set in. But with the butts, those toes will typically be more spread, and then their their dew claws will regularly show in the track behind the okay. main toes, and so they just they walk differently, and so you'll see this trail that's just you know covered in doe tracks, and then there'll be this one real prominent buck track that's in there, and you know that may come into play with uh, you know a larger, heavier bodied animal and stuff as well but i've seen you know little tiny first year forked herons that are still leaving that dew claws and a, a spread toe track okay so uh, that's that's a big deal and then uh, as far as like scat and stuff like that a lot of that's really weather related um as far as being able to tell buck versus doe um i think there's probably a way to break it down some but We've done more spoof videos on how the scat looks more like chocolate-covered peanuts <laughs> than uh, than really studied, <laughs> you know, what we're looking at. But uh, that, that's something I'm going to have to look into. <laughs> okay. And what about, like, tree rubbings? Oh, yeah. So so when – so the antlers are, are bone, and uh, when that bone is growing, it's covered in a vascular tissue that – you know, is is pumping all kinds of blood to it because those those horns are growing antlers, for the sake of this more <laughs> slightly more technical discussion, are growing it up to an inch a day. So oh, wow. so they're sucking nutrition and and stuff from the blood in that tissue at a crazy rate. Some of the fastest growing, you know, any part of any animal, and uh, so when when those horns. It's really nah. hard. hard to get out of the habit, but we're trying to have a conversation about antlers. Um, when those antlers harden, that that tissue that's been supplying blood actually dies, and and they rub it off. So we call that the velvet because it's a, a fuzzy skin-like tissue that covers the antlers while they're growing. When that dies, they'll rub it off, and, and they'll rub it on trees and brush and and the ground, and uh, so. When that antler, when the velvet's first coming off, the antlers are almost white underneath. They're really light colored, other than the blood stains. And uh, then, as they rub on trees and stuff to clear that velvet off, they'll pick up tree sap and dirt and bark, and you know, and that's where a lot of that color of the antler will come from. And so how deep does that color go? Like that buck that you got, that's black. How deep does that uh, black it's, go? It's, it's very, just on the it's surface. Very surface. Okay. Yep. Yeah, if you cut into, you know, you take a, a miter saw and you cross-cut that, it's bone inside. So you'll have, you know, the different layers of bone, but it's it's basically white under that first layer. Okay. Um, I've messed around with making knife handles and various things out of it, and yeah, it's that that top layer is, is really most of your color. But, uh, yeah, they'll do... You know they'll they'll use those rubs to to clear that velvet off, and then of course they mark their territory and they, you know, show everybody what a big tough guy they are by tearing up the trees. Do they do that during the rut? Yeah, yeah. Er everywhere from you know when their antlers harden in you know late August, early September, 
on up through all the way through the rut. They'll they'll make roads. So uh, and when they're marking their territory, is that they'll kind of stay within that ten miles that you described earlier, or are they just doing that wherever they're whichever new harem they're with? Y- you know, I'm I'm not completely sure of that blacktails are a lot different in the way that they they roam than my understanding of whitetails. I've never hunted whitetails, but I grew up reading stories about, you know, every outdoor life is full of whitetail hunting. And so my impression of it is that they're much more territorial, much more scheduled and patterned, whereas the blacktails, I mean, they, they can, you know, roam drainage to drainage to drainage. I know they make scrapes, and I know they, you know, their scent glands in their legs are are rubbing on the brush and they're they're making rubs with their antlers as far as you know defined territories and things like that i honestly couldn't tell you how that comes into play okay but hmm. that's a good question okay now, now we need to study that <laughs> <laughs> yep um are you, how can you determine the age of the tracks and the droppings like wh- is there you just kind of what are some telltale signs on, okay, this is a day old, within a day, a right. few days old? Um, well, if if Lizzie's making a video and she drops <laughs> a little pile of peanuts out there, you can take one, put it in your mouth, and, and taste it and kind of get an idea if it's stale or not. But uh, it, it, I know hunters that'll smash and, you know, look it over and, and see. I mean, obviously, if it's sitting there and steaming, it's fresh. But uh, I'm a lot less worried about that. It's not like we're chasing a herd of elk through the countryside trying to get a, a sight of them. The, the deer are, are it, it's a different hunting style. You're, you're trying to almost get them to come to you. And more than anything, looking at sign, you're just gauging the amount of deer in the area. And you don't want to hunt somewhere there's no deer unless you know that there's one big old bachelor buck that you know, lives under this bluff, and you're going after him p- in particular. But uh, so, so as far as scat and manure, I'm, I'm, I don't focus on that a lot. Maybe to my detriment, it's just not something I've done a lot. As far as the tracks themselves, like right now, it's freezing every night, and so you know how when the ground freezes, that frost will, will you know, push up, and and it kind of deforms everything. And you'll be able to tell, oh, that track is not brand new fresh because it's been frozen. It's all deformed. And, yeah, I can tell that was a, a good-sized buck track or, you know, some does walk through here. But I can tell it's not immediately in the last few hours because it's been frozen and it's deformed. If it's raining, you know, if it's got water in it and it's, you know, deformed, you, you can kind of tell. I mean, put your boot down and take your boot back and that's what a fresh track looks like you know yeah. it's got defined edges it's you know not been frozen or rained in you know those kinds of things so that's that's probably the best way to uh to figure a to to date you know carbon date a, a footprint is just kind of look at reference points okay what what have the other climate factors been on that and what are the tracks that i'm leaving what do they look like Got you. Um, and now, how do you pattern blacktail if you can? <laughs> <laughs> In my experience, unless 
you set up a bait station or something and you've got a, a steady population of does and things like that, maybe if, if those were the factors that you were playing with, you might be able to pattern a buck for a few days in a row. But this time of year, between the rut and the weather and the phases of the moon and everything else, it's it's highly unusual, at least in my experience, to see a buck more than a day or two in a row in one place. And then he might be back in a week or two, or he, you might never see that buck again. Okay. You know, it, it's there's not a, a set your watch to it you know buck 123 will be through at 330 <laughs> i just i've i've never had that happen and i think some of it is the species some of it's probably the area where we hunt um but yeah it, i think especially from whitetails they are very different in that regard um they're just sneaky they are where they are and uh i i've seen you know you'll you'll get town deer you know that aren't migratory and will eat in you know mrs smith's lawn every night but but that's quite a bit different of a of an animal um you know environmentally than than these deer that migrate and then you know more of a pet than prey (laughs) almost and uh you know, it lives there year-round, and, and it, it has a schedule. And, and I'll bet when when October, November rolls around, those bucks aren't always in that same yard, you know, every night like they might be for the rest of the year. And during the rut, bucks would jump from group to group? Yeah, exactly. They're always looking for, for one of, you know, whatever doe is, uh, is open to be bred. Do you know about how long they stay with each group or no, at all? Yeah. No, they're just moving through looking for opportunity. Okay. So. Okay. Um, let's see. So, I have, will they reuse trails at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Is that, because that would kind of fall into that pattern. Yeah, it, it's not so much the, the pattern as geographically environmentally the best way to get from point a to point b is along a particular grade or around a particular obstacle so if you've got a a fairly steep valley or canyon and 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 you want to get down to the water source at the bottom or the food source at the bottom without just falling off of a cliff face the best way to do it is to walk down this particular grade you know, that becomes a game trail because animals are smart and they don't want to work harder than they have to. They conserve energy and resources. And so they'll they'll tend to, to define these trails. And uh, same thing if you've got a fence or a gate or, you know, logs down across an area where they can't walk through, you know, the, the trails will, will adjust and go around those things. Rock, cliff faces, that kind of thing. So, so the deer in the area will use a particular trail or network of trails, whether that is keeping covered. They're not going to walk out to a big open area unless they have to. They'll they'll use cover. Um, 
whether it's to get to a food source, all that stuff. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that mature buck is going to be on that trail tomorrow at 3.30. Yeah. Okay. You know, so th- there will be deer on that trail at some point tomorrow because that's how they get through this area. But uh, it, it doesn't mean that the time will be consistent or which deer. Okay. And so for our area here, what are the food sources that they would be traveling to? So in this ecotone area that we're in, um, we have we're we're on the border of oak savannas. So the the oaks where we are are kind of a scrub oak and a black oak, and so they both have really good acorns most years. There's years that the acorn production will be lighter, but uh, <laughs> she's really after something, isn't yeah. she? So acorns are a huge one. Um, we have a Ceanosis buckbrush chaparral here that uh, they really like to eat. I mean, obviously, one of its given names is buckbrush. Um, and, and with elk being, or uh, I'm sorry, deer being a, a browsing animal more than a grazing animal, they like to eat the wild lilacs or the Ceanosis and the, the buckbrush and stuff like that. So you'll see them go through and they'll they'll use their front teeth and they'll strip the leaves off of this you know brush in its more tender state so that's where fire and things like that come into to really helping deer habitat is it knocks back that real tough woody old brush and and gets more tender shoots that are easier and better for them to eat but uh and how does that how does that change from early bow season through rifle through late season they'll kind of they'll come through and they'll vacuum up the mushrooms and the acorns pretty early on so as as they migrate into the area that we hunt you know mid-october they're going to hit the acorns and and that kind of stuff really hard um and and the mushrooms and and some of those other things and once that's vacuumed up they'll move back to you know the brush and stuff like that and i mean they will eat grass and, and things like that but that's they they really like to browse okay um will your scent ruin a trail if you go on a trail will they want to stay away from that or is that their highway if your scent isn't immediately there they're just going to use it anyway they're they're definitely going to factor that in but they're also used to people being around so uh I I would say they've got a pretty good idea of how recent, you know, we've been there. And uh, obviously we do what we can to control our scent. But, yeah, uh, it's it's definitely a factor. So when you're you're getting ready, when you're scouting whatever for a spot, what are you looking for? You're looking for the food sources. You're looking for the, uh, the geography that convenes for where you think they'll be right um so early season water is a big deal um deer don't need a lot of it they're not even as as in need of water as elk but uh they still do need water about Um, how close do they have to be to that water source how far will they travel will they hang immediately around it or will they travel a few miles away and then migrate back not typically miles but, okay. you know, hundreds of yards for okay. sure. Um, but then you also, deer, 
love to have cover. They they want to bed and and move around in brush or trees and, and not be out in the you know full value exposed you know vulnerable. So uh, uh, y yeah, you look for bedding areas, you look for food sources, you look for water. Um, obviously, as soon as it starts raining, water goes off the off the list of things to work for because or look for because they can they can pull that from their food source or you know whatever so that that's a lot less critical but food cover and and travel areas are are probably the three main things to consider because you know going back to deer are smart and they don't want to waste energy and resources if there's a, a natural funnel to the terrain and you say boy the cover and the the terrain is gonna make it easiest to travel through a particular area maybe you set up a stand there gotcha. or, or you know one year you're hunting an area and you're in there late in the season and you see that the trails are all just beat down they're you know deep mud and you know there's no leaves left on them because the deer are traveling this area so heavily you know you know next year set up in that area or, or, okay. or still hunt in there so yeah, uh, you pull a lot of it from observations on the ground where the deer moving. But you know, if you're trying to digitally scout, um, yeah, look at your look at your uh, topographical lines and your your satellite images for you know where's cover and where's food, and okay. that kind of thing. And they're like any fairly large mammal; they uh, they eat a lot and they sleep a lot. So yeah, you know, where are they gonna do that? Um, so what does your preseason blacktail look like? Since that you can't pattern them too much, what are are you just like the week before you're looking at cameras, or a few weeks before? Or? It, the cameras, I mean, before season starts, yeah, they're almost just more of an item of interest because I like to look at deer and see what's out there. But uh, yeah, you're not necessarily gonna pick up a whole lot of real useful information until about a week before season okay you know and like i say we live or we're, we're hunting in a, in a migratory area so um like one of our favorite spots to hunt there won't even be deer there when rifle season starts and and definitely not during early archery and so you know we'll we'll go up in the high country and hunt a totally different area and uh, and that's you know kind of a different type of hunting and you know there again, more glassing, the deer way more spread out. It's it's high country timber, and uh, you know meadows compared to you know what we're hunting down in the, the brush and the oaks. So you know, <coughs> little just different factors. Okay, and remind me, did you see much in your early season this year? I didn't really hunt much during early season. Um, there was one day when I went out, and I think I saw five or six bucks that day. Um, Within close to bow range or glassing um, distance? They were all within a couple of hundred yards, okay. but no, I didn't have anything that was really shooting worthy uh, within actual bow range. Okay. But, uh, yeah, and those, uh, those were to a deer. They were all within quarter of a mile of a water source oh really so oh wow 
Um, did you try to make a play on them or not really? I was focused on elk at the time. Okay. Um, so I, I certainly would have taken a deer incidentally if it had, if it had presented itself, but none of these were, were drop dead giants and, uh, and none of them presented a, a good opportunity. So how would you have made a play with it? W- it was still super crunchy. It would be really hard to sneak it, it, up on them. It'd be really tough. Um, in the moment, if I couldn't, um, they're a lot more patterned in summertime because they're just eating and growing their their antlers. So uh, at that point, I'd say, okay, they're hanging around this water source. They're eating in roughly this area, and I'd probably set up a tree stand, you know, okay. along a travel route. But, uh, yeah, I where I really enjoy whitetail hunting is late season where you've got all the rutting activity and, yeah. you know, the the leaves are mostly off the trees and you're just looking at animals and it's it's way more interactive and, and action-packed than than early season sitting in a tree yeah. waiting, waiting for them to, to walk the water. For sure. Um, and so if you were going to set up a stand or get in a tree – how you'd want to get there before it's light and about how long does it take if they were in that area and they heard you getting set up what by the time it was light would they forget they heard you or think that you'd left or what does that look like a a wise man once told me that deer can't count so if you can have another hunter or or even non-hunter come in with you and then leave oh yeah the deer are gonna view this is our theory anyway and it really seems to play out with the cameras um and hunting success the deer will relax and go back to doing deer things because they think that that threat has left and so they can't count that two guys walked in and one guy walked out yeah is the thought behind that saying so uh if possible you can do that um otherwise yeah within a few minutes um as as mobile as deer regularly are you know they can have been several hundred yards away while you were climbing that tree cover that distance in short order and be walking under your tree in no time okay so i so you're probably not gonna ruin the spot right if you get out there before it's light right I guess even if you got out there after it's light, after a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they'll go back to moving around. So if you were, you know, if you were covering a soybean field or something and and you walked through the middle of the field and scattered everything off of it on your way to your stand, yeah, maybe that would be a bad idea. But, you know, we're, we're typically watching a travel route with our tree stand. And, uh, and some guys use bait, so, you know, a, a travel route or a bait station and uh you're you're not gonna approach through that you're gonna come around behind get in your tree and you know so you, you want to be mindful as far as how you approach gotcha. all that but yeah you're you're not i mean you've got to get there somehow so yeah that's that's just a sacrifice you make and so as far as methods you do a combination of still hunting and 
tree hunting. Yeah, still hunting is way more fun because you uh, see more deer, but it's way less uh, opportunities for actually yeah. loosing an arrow um, because it's a lot harder to have the deer not know you're there. Um, when you're in a tree, you might not see n- nearly as many deer in a day, but unless you do something wrong, they won't know you're there. Yeah. So uh, it, it's a more effective way of hunting. But still hunting is more fun than when you're, you know, a, just a hyperactive person that wants to move around. Um, it just, it's more fun to go see what's on the other side of the ridge. And yeah. And you'll you'll bump animals and you won't get a shot and things like that, but you'll know they were there. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's fun and it's interactive. So, for my bow season next year, I'm thinking of doing a combination of both while we're all climb a tree with my saddle in the morning and be up there during that prime time right um over that route and then after that prime time's gone or whatever around 11 or noon whatever get down and then still hunt some and do a kind of a combination where i'm doing my my due diligence during that prime time but i'm also getting that interactive actually getting out and and uh uh looking for them no, I, that that's the ideal mix in my mind, mostly because that's how I do it. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, yeah, most days I try to be in a stand in the morning, but it's just so much fun to get down and walk yeah. around. But a, a deer, like, like with an elk, noise is less of an issue um, because they're a big, loud animal, um, and they're, they're often in groups with deer – so often the mature bucks will be a solitary animal that is not very loud itself and it's hyper aware of everything going on around it it becomes a little bit less so during the rut and if if you happen to get on in on one that's chasing a doe or or in a standoff with another buck you know maybe you can get them distracted but most of the time it's really hard to either draw your bow or move or anything else without a mature blacktail knowing that you're right there you know yeah and they're not gonna hang around yeah so um and do you do you come back to your stand in the evening for those that prime time as well different stand okay yeah okay why would you do a different one if you already had just a spread out yeah that that's some of it is you you don't want to saturate an area where where you start to actually push the deer away because there's so much human activity there but uh also just you know wanting to see something different yeah you know, little variety and so if you were to set up on a route if you got busted multiple times would those bucks then be wary of that spot and go around you or would in, like? in my experience, it's going to be unusual for the same buck to bust you multiple times. Um, maybe the same does because they'll they'll hang in an area more often. Okay. And, and you always want to be mindful of the does because that's why the bucks are there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, e- either they're going to get used to you or they're going to avoid you one way or the other. So. Okay. Um. How do you adapt to weather, and what are some other factors that you consider um, when it comes to still hunting versus tree sand hunting? 
basically if I've got really inclement weather, for one thing, it's going to be hard to be in a tree because you're going to get wet and cold and miserable. So it's nice to get down and move around. But also when it's wet and cold and miserable is a really good time to get down and move around because I've, I've walked around a bush that a buck was eating on the other side and gotten within feet of them because you've taken noise and a lot of your scent off the table as far as factors. So they're, you know, they're down to, you know, fewer of their senses for being able to detect you. So that's, you know, a, a rainy or snowy day is really nice as long as the snow's not crunchy um, for being able to get out and actually, you know, sometimes approach a deer pretty close. Yeah. So. And what are some other factors, if any, that you consider other than weather? Wind. Wind, yeah. wind is terrible when it, it's a windy swirly day good luck getting close to them maybe you'll be better off at a tree stand because you get that scent up off the ground but there again it can blow down to them and uh, and scent is that's that's probably the number one bust the deer out factor um, at bow ranges um, rifle ranges obviously it's way less of a factor but uh, yeah, the the wind is tough. And I was in a tree the other day, and it got pretty windy. And it's like, boy, I don't know if I could accurately shoot in this. Oh yeah, <laughs> not just arrow being deflected, but the stand is moving all over the place. <laughs> so uh, anyway, wind is tough. Uh, if if you have the day available to hunt, hunt. But um, rain and snow is awesome for still hunting, and in the the cold, drier, you know get in the stand and so when you when you snuck up on that one how far away were you when you saw him oh i had seen him probably 60 yards away kind of down in a canyon okay and then i stepped back and approached from another direction and i was actually muzzle loading hunting for elk at the time but i wanted to see how close i could (laughs) get to this deer and i got really close oh that's super cool that's cool um if you do get busted in a good spot what's your next step um will you will you try to tail them or is it even worth it because they're gonna be hyper alert with a rifle i have followed deer and ended up killing them because you know i had a little bit of distance that i could use um with a bow in my opinion, it's a moot point to try and follow them. Yeah, you're 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 never gonna get close enough to to get an arrow in them. Um, that being said, just sitting tight and kind of letting them sort it out has worked for me in the past. I, I I've read varying studies where you know they've come up with deer attention spans of anywhere from a minute to ten minutes, but it doesn't seem like they have really long. Oh, really? Memories. So if you, you know, stop moving, you you take the attention off of yourself. They're funny because they'll they'll look away. They're kind of like a toddler where they'll look away and act like they're doing something else. And then they'll whip back (laughs) and look at you and they'll do that two or three times. But if you, you know, don't react, don't move, you know, I've had them in fairly close proximity just go back to being deer for me. Oh, wow. So, say, if you were going on one of their trails and 
you came head on and then they turned around and left if you just waited off that trail would they come back after a bit it, it depends on how how well they identified you if they were like, oh, that's a dude, <laughs> you know, I, I'm out of here, then, yeah, they might not just come right back. But if they're, you know, just suspicious of a smell or a, a movement or something like that that they saw and, and they don't really bust out and, and run away away, um, I've had pretty good luck with them going back to, to just feeding deer. Okay. And I guess that was that spike in that doe. Right. Earlier in the season, they were in one of those uh, steps going up, right. up, um, and I was coming out of the trees there, and they saw me and started to run away a little bit, but I was right up next to a tree, and I just braced on that tree, and I had good uh, background behind me, right. so I was pretty concealed, and they only ran a little bit, and then they just turned, and they kind of did just keep doing what they were doing and actually walked towards me a little bit, right. and they kept that little buck was so just looking at me walking towards me for a while didn't know what i what what i was they're so cute when they're little and <laughs> curious like that and yeah there's a reason bambi was a big hit <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that was that was all my main questions and uh and points i wanted to bring up uh, is there anything else that you think would be oh, it, beneficial it's, for it's a lifelong new hunters? Pursuit. Yeah, you, you learn every time you do it, and at least I forget, and then I relearn the hard way. But uh, no, I, I think that's a, a basic breakdown, and I'm sure I got all my scientific facts wrong. But <laughs> uh, as I understand it, that's how things work. Cool, cool. I think we did a pretty good job at breaking down their characteristics and um, what to be looking for geographically and food wise and then bringing that into hunting so that cool was, that was fun to talk about yeah thanks for coming on i appreciate it um hope anyone listening uh, got something out of that and uh if you're like me you want to learn and i know podcasts help me and uh yeah having good guys like jamie and nate bailey uh is a very big resource um so yeah, it'd be nice to get Nate on here at some point, and uh, yeah. Yeah, those experienced guys that have been doing it is, I mean, that's how that knowledge gets passed down is yeah, talking to the old dudes, so that'd be awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for coming on, and I uh, hope everyone has a good week.